This episode is brought to you by Insecure on HBO. The third season of Insecure was hailed by critics as one of the best shows of the year. Devastatingly funny and refreshingly real. For your Emmy consideration and outstanding comedy series and all other categories, visit hbo.com slash FYC for more on Insecure. If there's a TV series right now that speaks to Time's Up, there's no better one than FX's Fosse Verdon, which tells the story about award-winning choreographer, theater and film director Bob Fosse, played on the series by Oscar winner Sam Rockwell, and the woman behind his legacy, musical star Gwen Verdon, portrayed by Golden Globe winner and four-time Oscar nominee Michelle Williams. Here with us today on Crew Call are Fosse Verdon co-creator Stephen Levinson, who won a Tony Award for the Broadway musical Dear Evan Hansen, and series EP and writer Joel Fields, who won an Emmy for his work on The Americans. Tell me about how everything kicked off, like how you got the book, how you found the book, and how long this was in development. Yeah. It all began with the book, like you said. Uh, Sam Watson wrote this biography, Fosse, which was an incredible, is an incredible biography. Um, it's really a doorstopper of a biography. It just has everything in it. Um, and a producer named George Selzner brought the book to FX, I think right when it came out, which was I think around 2013. And they had it for a while and nothing really came of it. And then Sam, who went to Wesleyan, uh, with Lin-Manuel Miranda, emailed him and basically said, would you have any interest in coming aboard this as a producer? Um, and Lin was in Hamilton at the time, still, and was in his dressing room when he got the email. And Tommy Kale, uh, who directed Hamilton, was there with him. And Lin basically said to Tommy, would you want to be involved with this too? You know, I'm Lin was happy to lend his name and his support, but didn't see himself obviously as, you know, a day-to-day -day producer on it. But Tommy was, uh, had already directed a bunch of television. And this is a book that really went through the theater community like wildfire, everybody had read it. And um, and obviously Fosse is a name that carried quite a, carries quite a bit of weight in that corner of the world. Um, and so Tommy immediately said yes. Uh, and, what followed was, I guess, several, a few months after that, I met Tommy um, at uh, at an event at a La La Land screening, um, naturally, in New York. Um, and we'd sort of known each other through the theater world, and uh, but had never really met. And we started talking, and uh, we, we got together a few weeks later to just sort of chat. And he told me about this project. And um, as I was telling Joel there, earlier, we were talking, uh, the common thread through this project has been people saying yes, before you even finish the sentence. You know, as soon as you hear fall, everybody is, of course, how, how can I be involved? And I was certainly one of those people um, that was just desperate to be involved in any way I could. Um, and so I came on board and we about, I would say 14, 16 months later, um, had a first script and a Bible and um, FX said, let's do it. Um, and at that point, right before I'd gotten involved, when when Tommy came on board, he had known uh, Sam Rockwell socially. Um, and Sam had always uh, said, you know, when Tommy ever brought up the idea of television, that he would want to do something if it was a limited series, um, if it shot in New York. And he was particularly keen on the 1970s in New York. You know, he really loves that era and wanted to tell a story like that. 
And so again, Tommy said, do you want to do this thing about Bob? And he already said, you know, I'm in I'm in tap shoes and ready to go. Uh, so so Sam was involved from before I was. Um, and so, yeah, 16 months later, they said yes. And we were off to the races. And then Joel became involved shortly after that. Now, no, tell me about how when when you when you jumped on. I was on my post-Americans family vacation <laughs> and uh, received a phone call about the project. And as Stephen said, you, you just hear fa. And if you're a musical theater obsessive, uh, you, you want to be involved. And, uh, you know, I knew the Pippin score inside and out. I'd grown up on that. And I literally, uh, Stephen likes to say on my resume, it says under special skills, knows every word of all that jazz. It's true. <laughs> Which proved helpful. Finally, so helpful. Finally proved yes. helpful. The fact that I memorized that movie as a teenager. Uh, and Stephen, I, I just found out today that when you first spoke to Ike Coulter, who's one of the a playwright who was one of the writers on staff, he was literally sitting under a Sweet Charity poster. Yes. And I, of course, have a Can-Can poster in my mm -hmm. office that you've now seen. <laughs> so there's a there's a common thread amongst all of us. Uh, I think among my favorite moments uh, in the process was when Tommy Kale finally met my wife. Right after she walked out of the room, he smiled and waved at her and he said, sorry about August, which was yes. what was supposed to have been our vacation. And instead <laughs> became me and Steven working remotely, uh, writing and rewriting and uh, figuring yeah. out the show before we were ever in the same room together. Yes. But here we are in the same room together. It's been a, it's been a great This is run. the first day we've met, actually. Yeah. <laughs> you look nothing like that. Yeah, I, I know. Expected. It's been so strange. Now, um, before the biography came, came out, was it known that she was always his muse and always she was, you know, he was nothing without her. Gwen has always been um, a big presence in, in there have been a few biographies of Bob and, and she's always a big presence. In an earlier biography, it, it depicts her in a very different light. In that biography, um, which I think is called All His Jazz, she's very much, uh, he presented her as a little more opportunistic and a little more cunning about the way that she used Bob to achieve her own artistic goals. And I think Sam had a little bit of a different take on that. Uh, and the reason, you know, when when Tommy and I first started talking, we were talking about a show called Fosse. And we met um, with Nicole Fosse, who was their only child. Um, and, it, it, you know, the six degrees of separation of it all, we we went to breakfast with her and Andy Blankenbuehler, who helped choreograph uh, our series ultimately. But Andy, was um, is an incredible choreographer. Uh, he did Hamilton in the Heights, um, but he began as a dancer and was in the show Fosse on Broadway, where he met not only Gwen, who was still alive, but Nicole as well. Um, so he was sort of our our connection, our way into um, Nicole. She knew that he, even if we were not the real deal, at least Andy was. Um, and so as we were talking to Nicole, um, you know we what we discovered um in that meeting and then sub subsequent meetings is every time she would talk about her dad her mom was always part of the story and um you realize if you begin to look back at at anything about bob and just sort of read between the lines she's always there um but she's always you know just there it seems like in a lot of the biographies she was just sort of around helping assisting um but we began to feel like oh her 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 involvement was more than people might realize. Um, and her involvement, not just in the work, but in 
in keeping him alive, frankly, and keeping him sane and in, in knowing how to um, how to keep him grounded, how to, you know, she, she, she did a lot of what we would now call emotional labor for which she was never compensated. Was she responsible for some of the, the nuanced core? You know, when we see her in the cabaret episode and she's fixing elbows and, and, and knees in, and is she responsible for some of his greatest touches? I mean, I mean, that's 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 my takeaway from the series. Yeah, I think I think the answer is I think the answer is yes. And she she used to say she knows how to speak Bob. But I think that was in, in a lot of ways her technique of navigating all of her contributions, because one of the things she had to do, given who he was and given what the times were, was not to take too much credit and to make it seem as she was just as if she was just there as a spokesperson for his genius, because the myth of the sole genius is so powerful and so important in society. And at that time, the myth of the sole male genius was even more dominant. It, it wasn't possible for her to be the full, be perceived of as the full collaborator that she in fact was. And there's yep. such a porousness, there's sort of a, a murkiness about especially choreography because Bob was often creating these dances with her in the room and you just don't know what she contributed. You don't know the flourishes that she added or the little things that she, the little touches. And there were definitely a lot of them. And and you could definitely, and Bob did see a, 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 a very stark line between before Gwen and after Gwen in terms of his own choreography. He um, was not a trained choreographer. He didn't know ballet. Um, and Gwen was a, an incredibly trained dancer. And she came to him from Jack Cole, uh, who was her first um, sort of mentor and, and she was part of his dance company and she brought all of that vocabulary which actually a lot of that has become synonymous with Bob's work um, but a lot of it was Jack Cole via Gwen Verdon so she she not only I think you know directly changed things but she kind of taught him so much it's such a perfect story for now with time's up you know, and 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 and, and the woman and, and the woman coming forward was that one of the things did did FX respond to that? Did was that was that on everyone's minds as you you know when you added the Verdon into the into the title? Yeah, for sure. And and it was also I think on our minds in in every decision that was made th through the telling of the story. In, in a way, it's the it's the why now of it. Um, but it also became an opportunity to explore something that is very important today, that was important but unexplored then. And to do it through this complex relationship and through the experiences of these characters who were living at a very different time, but struggling with these issues that we're finally dealing with much more out in the open today. And it's, you know, it's interesting because Bob was not, uh, was not shy about showing that part of himself. If you watch all that jazz, he basically depicts himself as a predator of sorts. He just doesn't kind of show that there's anything wrong with it. You know, it was sort of just like the way it was. If anything, it was just a kind of personal, you know, failing that he was so lustful and, and couldn't help himself. But it wasn't, you never saw it from her perspective, by which I mean the woman. You know, you never see the, the people whose lives he's actually affecting. And I, I think when, when Tommy and I first started talking about the story, um, we were very nervous because we felt like Bob, Bob clearly was somebody who abused his power in many ways. 
Um, and we just didn't know, how do you tell that story? Is that a story that, that people want to hear told? And it was right at the moment that the Me Too movement really exploded. And when that happened, it, it actually felt like, oh, rather than how do we get around this awkward, awful part of the story, it was like, no, that actually is the story. That's rather than the subtext, that's the text. You know, it's really, it's about somebody who abused his power. Now, Michelle Williams' attachment to this is so logical and so organic. If you could talk about that. She had done cabaret, correct me if I'm wrong, mm -hmm. previously on, on Broadway. Um, how did, like, when she came to this, was it just kind of like she had all of Gwen in her already? Like, or did she, was it an enlightening experience for her? I think for well? both Sam and Michelle, the journey to finding these characters was a long and deep one. Their actors who work extremely hard. They, they have different uh, work styles, but not different work ethics. They both do an enormous amount of research, emotional, physical, vocal. They spend a lot of time talking to Nicole, uh, looking for stories and history and details. And we spent a lot of time sitting in a conference room with them in Tribeca talking about the scene work and how it reflected the characters. And boy, that first day we arrived on set, Long Island Beach, uh, standing <laughs> yes. in for the beach in Mallorca, uh, 55 degrees blustery wind standing in for what was the line? August in Mallorca. And then <laughs> we actually ended up cutting, the, the whole scene was, began with how humid it was. So and, my hair. It's yes, just, and it was just like, we can't have these poor actors say <laughs> these lines about how hot they are. But, but after all of that research, after all of that time, after all those discussions about character, there was this stunning moment where Sam and Michelle stopped being Sam and Michelle and just dropped into these characters and you could see all of that preparation disappearing and transforming into the characters that they played. So um I watched I watched the first I watched the first four episodes in in moderation uh throughout, you know, from when they dropped until around mid-April. And then I caught up and I rushed with everything from five to the end in the last week. Mm. And so after and so I was still high on seeing the Pippin episode in episode uh, Glory in in part four, and then you've got Patty and Anne and 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 all of them in a house and and in episode five. And I'm like, okay, all right, well, this is kind of like relaxed from the previous episode, and yet so amazing, enlightening, because it's all about the relationship with Anne and Anne with uh, Gwen. Because when, and it, 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 again, again, it was a portal for me because I think of Anne and I think of her as, as strong. I think of her as strong in the character she played in Annie. I think of her choreography work. I think of her as the disciple of Fosse. Like, and, and, um, and I love that she's played, she's not, she's not played as a complete innocent, but she's, She's she's wet behind the ears, but she's smart enough to know, you know, something's going on. And I just love the dialogue. Could you expound on their relationship, Gwen and Anne? Because it's amazing that Gwen just, it, it's like she just gave in to this partner and immediately said, here, how can I work this? Not 
not in a not in a Machiavellian way or she, or in a, she like she was capitalizing on something, but she immediately realized I can have a partner with this person. And she was able to, you know, when it came to talking to Bob, Annex and could you talk about that? Just that I just found that so fascinating, their dynamic, yeah, Anne, we, Anne and Gwen. We loved, obviously, that dynamic from the beginning. Um, you know, when the interesting difference between the two of them and when they came into Bob's life is that when Gwen met Bob, as you, as you see in the show, Gwen was already a star and Bob was basically a nobody. He had directed Pajama Game, or I'm sorry, he had choreographed Pajama Game and won a Tony. But in those days, being a Broadway choreographer was not, uh, it didn't mean a lot. Um, he was not super impressed with the fact that he was a Broadway choreographer. Um, all he really wanted to be ever in his life was Fred Astaire from the very beginning. And he just didn't have the X factor that makes somebody a star. And so he went into choreography kind of by accident um, at the urging of his, his second wife. Um, and so when the, the power dynamic was so different when they met that, that she was the star and he wasn't, and she kind of helped him become a star. Um, and as his star rose, hers began to, to fall. But when Anne met Bob, he was already the Bob Fosse. You know, he was a legend in New York theater. He was already directing films, which in those days was, was very rare for a theater director to be directing movies and movies were huge in the 70s, obviously, and had so much cultural cachet. And she was, I think she was 21 when they met. And if you look at the pictures of her from Pippin, it does not look like the Anne Ryan King that, that you think of now. I mean, she had apple cheeks and was just this really adorable young woman bursting with enthusiasm. And, and yet, obviously, always incredibly intelligent and sophisticated and enormously talented. Um, but they, they're in such different stages of their life. And I think I think the the thing for Gwen is that what Anne represents is somebody that can do what she can no longer do. You know, Anne is the dancer that Gwen once was. Um, and I think Anne looks at Gwen and sees the person that she's not going to be, uh, especially in episode five. I'm not going to end up like Gwen. I'll always be this. I'll always have this. Um, and, and so there's an interesting generational quality and, and uh, yeah, we just we 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 always thought of Anne's journey as one from innocence to experience. That that by the end she knows who Bob is. Yeah, now I'll just add uh, two quick things. One, you know, we spend so much time obsessing over the brilliant performances that Sam and Michelle gave mm -hmm. in this show, which we should all do. Uh, but it's important to remember the incredible power of what Margaret Foley brought and Norbert Leo Butts brought because. Th those the, the, those performances, you know, are the linchpins in a lot of ways of of elevating those characters for us. So mm. They were wonderful. Uh, then to answer your question uh, uh, about um, that relationship between Anne and Gwen, I think one of the things it did in terms of how Margaret's Anne became a reflection of Michelle's Gwen, part of what I think was so powerful about Gwen is that she was able to simultaneously be a fabulist and a very hard-nosed realist. She was able to constantly be performing the role of Gwen Verdon. She was able to constantly imagine the world as she wanted to be and embody it for everybody, including herself. But the way she was able to do it was being very realistic. 
should be realistic about who Bob was, should be realistic about what it takes to put this show on, be realistic about what this new relationship is going to be and how it has to be navigated. And, and that's, that's, how, that's how she got to perform her life, by, by putting in the hard work. This episode is brought to you by Insecure on HBO. The third season of Insecure was hailed by critics as one of the best shows of the year. Devastatingly funny and refreshingly real. For your Emmy consideration and outstanding comedy series and all other categories. I'm impressed how Anne wasn't territorial and didn't immediately shut her out. She came, like when, when Gwen rationalizes with her, and again, the whole agenda is to get him to do Chicago even though he wants to do Lenny. And of course, there's the compromise that he's going to do both. But she speaks to her and says, you know, this could make him sick. And here's why. And rather than be like the new girlfriend and shut the shade and shut Gwen out, she listens to her and gets on her side. And then Gwen has an ally. And we know that they're allies because in in, in further episodes, after Anne leaves him, uh, and, and, and Bob is talking about that to Gwen, Gwen is, takes Anne's side. She totally sympathizes with the journey she's got on. I just found that really fascinating that she, that they were allies, that they were allies. Yeah, Gwen had a very sophisticated um, or troubling or both relationship to Bob's infidelities and to the other women in his life. Uh, I think mostly because she knew who she was and she knew the value that she brought to him and she knew that she was indispensable. She was incredibly generous to all the women, even the young women that Bob would bring home for some dinner, you know, later in the 70s. Nicole talks about she was always polite and charming and made people feel at home. And didn't she organize a schedule at the hospital? She did. That's something that we did not show in in the show is that she actually there was a period when Bob was in the hospital after the heart attack where he had multiple young women coming to see him, not just Anne, and fights would erupt in the hallway over, you know, I, this, you know, wh- what are you doing here? And and she actually came up with a schedule so that they would never run into each other. That's amazing. <laughs> I mean, it's, That's and didn't seem to feel like, she didn't take a lot of umbrage at that. That was just something she could do to help Bob. You know, she really, she was a, a doer. Like you said, like Joel said, she was a, hard-nosed realist in some ways. And it's sad that she lived in a time where she had to behave in those ways in Mm -hmm. order to achieve what she needed to achieve in life, what she wanted to achieve. But it's astonishing also that she was able to do it. Uh, We were talking before we turned on the mics about our love of Pippin, (laughs) how Stephen, you were were Pippin twice. Yes. <laughs> Joel, you know Pippin like the back of your hand. I do. I and and I lost out on Pippin uh, because I was too brassy <laughs> back in my freshman year and wound up playing. But Pippin is. Uh, by the way, you could still do it. Yes. I believe. Oh, thank you. They, well, I have to slim down very, very substantially. <laughs> Why do you have to be so um, because and so I myopic my about <laughs> who Pippin is? I actually think it'd be a beautiful production. Absolutely. Think about your life. <laughs> <laughs> so that glory episode is amazing and it's amazing because you take Stephen Schwartz's songs and you reflect Bob's life in them and you gotta think Stephen when Stephen wrote the music 
I don't think he was writing about Bob like Bernie Toppin may have been writing about Elton John. And it's just, you end that episode and it's just so fascinating. All from simple joys to corner of the sky, you show these different uh, facets of Bob. Tell me about building that. Tell me about building that episode. Well, I'll say, A, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> B, speaking for myself, but I'll speak for Steven on this too. I don't think either of us anticipated when we were musical theater obsessives in high school, different places at different times, uh, listening to Pippin over and over and over again until it just became part of uh, our cellular structure. That that would prove useful at a later time, <laughs> yeah. writing a limited series for FX seems yeah. like a very long shot bet. Yes. And yet there we were sitting, I think, in my office yes. in Tribeca, really struggling with this episode when suddenly it, it dawned on both of us probably at the same time that Stephen Schwartz had written a musical about a guy who was desperately trying to find happiness and no matter what he did, couldn't. And uh, literally had the line, "I'll never, I'll, I'll never, I'll never find it, never, ever, yeah, ever." Yeah, yeah. Uh, while beating the, while beating his fists on the ground like a little boy, and and we realized that literally was the story of Bob that we were telling in that episode. And as, as soon as that opened up to us, yeah. that final sequence opened up, and, and the we whole knew we wanted, we knew the shit. story of that episode was one of the mo most fascinating episodes in Bob's life and in the biography. And one of the things that really pulled me into his story from the beginning was here's a guy who in one year wins a Tony, an Oscar, and an Emmy, which they call the Triple Crown. It's never been done since or before. Uh, it's all he ever wanted. He, he has achieved success in every endeavor that he took on. And within a month of winning the last award, he checked into a mental hospital suicidal. And that, you know, that is just so fascinating. I mean, I mean, that tells you everything you need to know about Bob Fosse. And the question was, how do we dramatize that? It's not that interesting to see someone winning awards. And yet we knew that that, that was Bob's story. And then, yes, as we Joel were working said, very, very hard. And then we thought, wait a second, someone already did this. Yes. Let's just use that. If you get everything you wanted and it's still not enough. Oh, right. <laughs> and also, <laughs> and you, you know, we know had this had. incredible challenge in front of us. Um, which was early on, Melissa Toth, who was our costume designer, um, who's <laughs> so great, brilliant. Great. And her work in the show is just incredible. Patterns. And from the beginning, she said, we can't do Pippin. We, that's the one show that we've looked at. And if you if you look at the pictures now, you see why, which is they're, the costumes are insane. They are a hodgepodge. You can tell that it's people brought things from home. They made things. It's just... We, I mean, we certainly could have recreated it, but the cost would have been prohibitive. Um, and so instead of fighting that, uh, I think it was Joel's idea to say, well, how can we show Pippin without showing Pippin? And that's what we do in the last act of the show. We, we do Pippin, we do, it's you brilliant. know, without ever having to see uh, those costumes, those sets. Um, and and, and yeah. in a way it's, it was an opportunity to do Pippin to me in its truest sense, much truer than you would have mm -hmm. seen had you tried to replicate the production. We could have poured a week of production and $10 million into trying to remount it. It, it never would have felt exactly like what it was, but this was, I hope, the, the emotional essence of the show oh. because it yes. was experienced through somebody who really was going through what Pippin went through. I wanted to tell every, I mean, everyone from high school 
that was in that show with me about that episode. Huh? The well, they should be listening. I presume. Yes, they're listening. they will. Yes, yes they will. Uh, but the, who did you get? You you, you told a story. You you yes. got a chance to meet Stephen Schwartz. Yes, I I basically when I got to interview him, like uh, when I was working at Variety and I got to interview him for Enchanted. I asked him in a joking fashion, could you call my chorus teacher up and tell him I should have got the role of Pippin? And he was just laughed about it. And then I uh, told my my chorus teacher over Facebook, I said, hey, I, I spoke with Steven Schwartz. I told him to call you and tell him that I should have had the role. And he was like, well, he was, I don't know if he took it, if he misconstrued the, the, uh, my, what I wrote, but he was like, it's funny, the things that we remember. <laughs> funny, like, why don't you, in a way of saying, like, you can give up on this. <laughs> I still think you should go. do it. Yes. Well, I, I will say we could not have done that episode without the generosity of Stephen Schwartz letting us use those music and lyrics. And he was just great yes. about it. I, my, I have a slight regret that I never got a chance to meet or speak on the phone with Steven Schwartz. Yes. We spoke to his representatives, but I'm also kind of glad that I never did because he was such a hero of my childhood. There's something great about him just existing in this generous place where he let us use the Well, what was so lyrics. incredible is we sent him the script um, and there were a few things in it where he said, you know, it didn't really happen like this in the timeline, but I understand as storytellers why you have to make this choice. And that was so amazing. Um, you realize, oh, he's a writer like we are. And he, the generosity of him saying, you know, well, Bob wasn't really at that rehearsal, but I get it. And, and it's true to the experience. And then he also gave us a couple of corrections yes. in terms of what happened, which yes. just really did heighten the accuracy, Absolutely. which no one would know except for Stephen Schwartz, who was there. Now, did you consult Anne? for the project or did she, did she ever? We didn't consult Anne and partly that was because the book, Sam Wasson's book, she was the main source for that book. Um, and she was the person who spoke most to Sam. And so we felt like we already had her story. Um, and so we didn't. She came to um, an event in New York uh, where we showed the first two episodes. And she, um, she talked to Margaret Qualley too, yes, and, as Margaret was preparing yes. for the part. And oh, I think she may right. have spoken to Sam. Yes, bit. I think she did, yeah. Um, and Andy Blankenbuehler knew her as well. So we felt like we sort of knew um, we knew the part of her story that we, we we wanted to use in the show. So in structuring the, the limited series, you begin with Cabaret, and then and then we go to Pippin in episode four, and then we go through through other monumental stops, Lenny, um, uh, all that jazz. Was that the way that you always envisioned it, going kind of through these the in structuring the series, these key these key landmarks in his in his canon? You know, it, it was really something that emerged as we went along. We knew that uh, we knew very early on that we were going to leave most things on the cutting room floor, which was heartbreaking. You know, there's so much great material that the two of them created and worked on together that we just didn't didn't fit in the story we were telling. We knew one of the first decisions we made was that we wanted to set this mostly in the 70s, that that would be the spine of the show. Um, and then, uh, you know, to use another metaphor, like spokes on a wheel, we could go forwards and backwards from there, but that the 70s was kind of the heart of it. And we made that decision mostly because it was the most fruitful period creatively for them together. Um, we felt like in terms of pushing musical theater and film forward, and it was also the period where their relationship was at its most complicated 
and uh, most fraught. And um, so that was that that decision, you know, created a lot of decisions. And then, you know, as we sort of plotted out their love story, um, that's how we filled in the rest. You know, it was really following, well, what is what is the Bob and Gwen story and what what signposts do we need? And we knew we knew Chicago would play a huge part in it because it was it was not only ultimately, and I think this would be surprising to both of them, their most successful project that they worked on together, the production that uh, was the remounted. The royalties. Yes, in the, and, and Gwen was right. It's gonna run for years. Gwen always said this will, this will be a huge hit, and it, it was a modest hit in the 70s, but then it came back in the 90s. It's still on Broadway. Um, well beyond the film. Yes, so, so oh, it's, yeah. it's been remarkably successful, and she was the one who knew it from the beginning. Um, and Bob always doubted it. Uh, so we knew Chicago would be huge because of that, because it was not just their biggest hit, but it was also where their marriage really ended. And by marriage, I mean their marriage had already basically ended, but their creative marriage, the work they created together, uh, something poisonous entered in that process and during that project that was, they never quite recovered from it until the very end um, of, of Bob's life when they began working on Sweet Charity together. Um, the revival, and which so, was a return to the beginning in so many yes. ways. But it, I think uh, that really is the answer to the question of the structure of the piece was to let go of the notion of hitting anything that seemed important to the plot or anything that seemed important to the history and to follow essentially uh, not the musical theater history plot, but rather the Bob and Gwen emotional journey plot. And as long as we followed that story, those big pieces. Because inevitably in, those pieces, place. those big pieces came in because that's what they were doing. You know, it's like telling a medical story. The big surgeries are gonna be in there. <laughs> you know, it was like that's 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 what they spent their time doing. So <clears throat> it's funny you mentioned that because I remember at one point we we I think very literally talked about treating musical theater the way yes. the way surgery is treated on a good medical show. Yes. Which is not to waste time explaining it not to worry about catching the audience up to it, but just to let it be the world in which they're existing. So complete confession on my part, I saw Cabaret for the first time over this weekend when I was flying back uh, on the plane. And I bought the movie five years ago on Amazon because I was interviewing Emma Stone and she was playing Sally Bowles, never got to see the movie. And I said to myself, I'm going to watch the movie. <laughs> so I watched the movie and I watched, of course, after the first, watching your first episode. And what I found really interesting is here he is, he's racking his head over Cabaret. How do I solve this film? How do I edit this film? How do I put this film together? We show how nuanced she is, Gwen, and making the choreography work with, with the dancers over the cocktail chairs and slapping the floor and it's it's very, and he completely, in my opinion, cheats himself on his own great choreography work because he's got the camera too close. Whereas you guys have respectfully pulled it back and we can see this great canvas. I found that very That's fascinating so in, in watching Cabaret. I'm like, he's got all this great choreography going on stage but we're too close. We feel like we're sitting, we're literally sitting in the first seat yeah. with the stage, with our with our chin on the stage, and we kind of have this 
we're way too close up and we're I just thought that was really I don't know. I'm going to I'm going to yeah. I'm going to speak out in defense of Bob. Foster. Okay. OK, not not his behavior as a as a human being, but in his directorial choice there. I think what he was doing there and, and hand in hand with Gwen, who was in the editing room with him, as depicted in the show, I, I think he was really reconceiving what it was to make uh, dance numbers on film. And up until that point, there had been many, many Broadway uh, shows that turned into musicals and many, many Hollywood musicals. And they were all done essentially with a third wall that the camera stayed behind with uh, one master in a couple of angles. And that was the way it was experienced. And you think about the mine hair number and the fact that that chair is seen not just from the front, but from the side and from the back, it's dragged towards you, it dragged away from you from all these different angles. If you watch it through the prism of today, where we've grown up on MTV, it seems like you've been cheated from that choreography. I think if you pull yourself back and realize that MTV wouldn't have existed without what Bob and Gwen reconceived cinematically in Cabaret, he was creating a new cinematic vocabulary there. And uh, I, I think in, in that way, it does hold up. And then can I stay? Oh, totally. <laughs> no, no, good. I wanted to talk about this because I was like, I was like, why is he got it so? Like, you guys give this great uh, perspective, you know, like epic look at, at the dancers all lined up and how how everything's coming together. And I and I'm like watching this. I'm like, wow, he's he's really. But I we're telling a different. Every, but we're yeah. telling yeah. a different story. In fact, yeah. the story that we were telling and that Tommy Kale was shooting cinematically there was the story of the creation of that dance numbers, of that dance number and, and the story of seeing Bob and Gwen and the camera in relation to that number, which was great to look at and, and made it not a Xerox of that original cabaret number. But what Bob Fosse was telling was the story of Sally Bowles in that cabaret. Um, uh, I'll, end, I'll end this with, can you tell us what you're working on next? I know uh, you're you're adapting. Correct me if I'm wrong, dear Evan Hansen. Yes, and I'm going to pray that you're you're doing a spinoff of Americans. <laughs> uh, Joe Iceberg and I are uh, talking about a new series idea, and it is not a spinoff of the Americans. They're they're all just gonna. Paige is still drinking in that uh, in that safe house. <laughs> She'll, daughter will be found one day, 20 years later, right? <laughs> They'll find her in that same apartment, maybe. I'll, I'll leave that to you to pitch. <laughs> and then, and there, and then you have, is, is Dear Evan Hansen? It's, uh, Dear Evan Hansen is still running on Broadway and it's, uh, there's a tour and we're opening it in London in the fall. Um, so that's exciting and uh, yeah. And then it's gonna be a movie. It is gonna be yeah. a movie. Somebody has to write it. I've been told it's me. Um, so yes, <laughs> I, I will do that. And when I, I thought I, I, I pitched you the fix. I know, I know. Five, five, ten minutes to whip that up. I know. Everybody's like, just copy and paste it. <laughs> uh, yes. Well, you got to switch it from the. Um, yes, exactly. It needs to be a draft. Yeah, you got to put it in the uh, draft. That's Try it on movie magic. <laughs> Has there been talk to 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 bring another another musical legend story after this? To the forefront there hasn't i mean i wish i wish there was i wish there was but uh yeah i think i think we found uh 
a pretty special pair <laughs> in Bob and Gwen. It's hard to imagine um, a um, more dramatic or complicated collaboration. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think that's another thing that was really fun for us in this is it, it's a show that we hope will explore and blow up the myth of the singular auteur, usually the singular male auteur, and expose the truth that film, television, theater, it's all really an art of collaboration. And part of what was really fun is that we got to be very conscious of the joy of collaboration as we made this show about collaboration. And for me personally, part of the fun was meeting and working with great new collaborators. Absolutely. So I'll also yeah, Bob say, was, I'm sure Stephen and I will wind up continuing to work together. Absolutely. And uh, well, it was it was it was great. So much of the stories about poisonous collaborations, um, and uh, and about a person, Bob, who like all of us, I believe, as artists, could not do it without other people, and yet was incredibly insecure about that fact, and and kind of needed to bury it. Um, it was so important to him that it was a Bob Fosse film. It was a Bob Fosse musical, and uh, he never got over that. And I, I feel like that's sad. Um, but but we made it in a way that was so filled with joy and with our collaborators, with Tommy Kale, with Alex Lackamore, who did the music, Andy Blankenbuehler, Susie Meisner, who did the choreography. It was always a conversation and it was always, you know, it was always the best that these things can be. And, and that was one of the things I'm most proud of. Thank you. Thank you so much.